This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. And we're going to talk to Ben Popham, champion Australian Paralympic swimmer. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Duff. So how do you feel, mate? You ready to talk for 44 minutes? I am ready. I've worn my vocal cords up. They are they're ready to go. Okay, good. Where, where are you at with your career at the moment? What's on? What's big that's on at the moment? Well, obviously, uh, Paris will be the next big thing. Um, and Worlds trials uh, just went, and I uh, missed out, unfortunately. But, um, you know, the nature of the sport, a highly competitive beast. Um, and so head down, try and go. Trials will be next year in June. So from now till June, it's just going to be about slow, steady improvement and, and making sure I need, I am where I need to be uh, 12 months down the line. So do you take some downtime now or do you get straight back into it? Um, straight back into it. I think most swimmers you'll find are probably swimming for all but one week of the year. It's quite a, um, full schedule and that's just because you lose feel of the water so quickly, um, that you don't want to be out uh, of the water for long. And so the down part of the season, the downtime is, is basically not competing. So we basically only compete six months of the year. Um, and then so for the other six months, uh, you basically just work technique, make sure you're in good physical condition for the six months that we're racing. Okay, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Tell us about uh, growing up in Perth. Yeah, well, I was actually uh, born in England, which is an interesting conundrum given the ashes are on. And I think uh, that really gave me a love for Australia for when I did move over. We moved when we were six um, and it was because of uh, my cerebral palsy. Um, you know, my dad mentioned to my physio at the time that, uh, I had, or he had the opportunity to, um, come over here for work. And the physio said, mate, the less time you can spend here, the better effectively, because, you know, Australia is such a good place to grow up. There's so much open space, there's so much greenery. And, and not only that, every kid plays sport, which is incredible for someone who has a disability like me. And, and so we moved over. And it was it was a joy. You know, I played most sports. I played cricket, AFL, got into swimming. And, and for me, it was the perfect place uh, to grow up. So you were diagnosed with diplegic um, cerebral palsy. So explain what that means. Diplegic is basically just a fancy word for it affects my legs more than it affects my arms. And now that isn't to say it doesn't affect my arms. You know, my general coordination is af- affected and all my muscles are tight, but... Um, my legs are affected more. So that would be difficult to play something like AFL or cricket or those sorts of sports given that condition. How how was that for you? Uh, it was pretty tough, I won't lie. I think AFL, it was easier to get around than it was cricket. I remember I, by maybe 10 years old, I, I could hand pass further than I could kick. And, and so for the first quarter of every game, I used to be great because as soon as I'd take the mark, the kids wouldn't expect me to hand pass at 20, 30 metres. They'd expect me to sort of um, go back on the mark and take a kick. But after quarter one, they figured me out and they just sort of <laughs> blocked off all the, the short options and I was uh, I was cooked. So who were you playing for? Who were you playing? Green Cats. Green Cats. Green Cats. We, uh, we were all right, actually. We're a pretty good team. Um, and so, you know, when I eventually made the the switch to full-time swimming, it was, uh, it was tough. Obviously, this is something you were born with. Did you feel different growing up or? 
Um, yeah, I think so. Not in, not in a bad way. I, I have a twin brother, Adam, who's, um, able-bodied. So, um, it was always apparent with the comparisons, um, you know, it started from the very start where Adam was walking at a very early age and I was, you know, still crawling at, at two years old. And, and so the comparisons were always there, but I think it actually was amplified in primary school. You know, kids are curious and I didn't quite understand, um, the limits of my disability. Um, and so primary school was tough because, you know, every lunch I was reminded where we went to play soccer, uh, that I couldn't do certain things as well as other kids. And, and so that was difficult. Were you accepted or was there discrimination? How was childhood and school days for you? Um, primary school was a lot harder than, than high school for sure. I think Adam did a really good job at shielding me from some of um, the tough love, I guess, that I would experience when kids are asking me questions that I don't want to answer. I think Adam sort of stepped in and did that for me. But in saying that, it was a, a tough time um, for me because – I didn't like who I was. I think you always want to fit in as a kid. And so anything that you can't do really sticks out to you like a sore thumb. Mm. And so instead of focusing on what I could do, I was always focusing on what I couldn't. And so that created a very negative headspace. And as a result, quite a, a negative um, worldview, uh, if you will, as a kid. Um, and it made me quite unhappy. And it was only you know getting into high school that I, I really started to change that. And you're about seven when you started swimming? Yeah. So tell, tell us how that came about. Yeah. It's a good story, actually. Um, I'm glad you asked. When I made the switch to my Perth-based physio, he was um, really into stretching, as all physios are. And anyone who's had a bad back before uh, could tell you that they don't like doing stretches. Basically, the point of the physio is to get better with uh, sort of the minimum amount of effort required. And so, like anyone else, I didn't want to do my stretches. And the physio every week told me, mate, you've got to do your stretches. And so he said, look, sport is going to be a great way for you um, to get uh, the most out of your body. So it's either swimming or, or horseback riding was the two, and I'm not much of a um, horse man, so swimming it was. And the first thing that um, kept me in the sport, other than, you know, fitness and friendship and for all the right reasons, the first thing that really kept me in the sport was every week I went back to the physio and he said, Ben, if you've been doing your stretches, your range of motion has increased incredibly. So, and you know, I claimed it and I said, yeah, yeah, I've been doing my stretches. This is really good. And week after week, I didn't do my stretches and the physio said that I was getting better and better. And I'm now the star student of the physio, uh, clinic. And so, you know, my posters everywhere, everyone's telling me how good I am and how much of a role model I am for kids. But really, I was just swimming. I still wasn't stretching. And so I was loving it. I didn't tell them until sort of three months down the line that I still wasn't doing my stretches. I was only swimming. So that's what kept me in it. So where did you go to swim? Who taught you? Superfins. Uh, I can't say enough good things about Superfins. Superfins was my first club and the only club that I've been a part of that was disability only. So their focus is... Um, you know, as I mentioned, making sure there's a real social connection there, making sure you're doing it because you want to stay fit, you want to make um, a whole heap of friends. And I did just that. And I, I started to love the sport. And I was there for, for a good five years. And it was, um, it was a beautiful introduction to the, to the wild world of, of swimming. Did you have a specific coach or was it a range of coaches? Yeah, a range of coaches. I think, um, you, especially with um, para sport, as I sort of um, realized later, uh, in a more permanent fashion. Parasport is all about 
uh, trying to find the connection with the right coach so that they understand your body as well as they can. And it's all about being able to, as a duo, your swimmer and your coach, make the right adjustments and basically get creative with how you can overcome uh, your disability in that certain issue. And so it's very dependent on what coach you have and how that works. So, you know, I was shifting between th- three or four coaches at the, uh, at the start to find which works best for me. So when you're swimming, do you do a specific stroke or what, what's your pet stroke? Yeah, I'm basically a freestyle. Like I'm a one-trick pony. I, I cannot do any of the other strokes to any level of expertise. I think uh, the only reason why I'd ever do a stroke other than freestyle in training was to basically give my muscles a rest, you know, stretch out my shoulders doing backstroke or or try something new with, with butterfly that might transition across to freestyle. But for the most part, uh, 99% of the distance I do is, is freestyle. So were you good at it from the start or was it something you had to learn? Well, it was something I definitely had to learn as a young kid and probably still now, if you ever see a photo of me, I'm a very uh, skinny individual. And so... Uh, With You're about three axe handles across the shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now <laughs> I am. Now my, my shoulders are quite broad and I'm quite tall, I guess. I'm six foot one, so... But when I was younger, I was skin and bones. There was nothing to me. And so you had to be patient to and trust the process that your body was going to grow into itself effectively. Um, and so it it made uh, me into a sort of a late developer, if you will. But the, the signs were there that I was going to, you know, show some promise in the sport. I just had to had to be patient. Tell us about you were the little telethon star in 2011. So that was probably your introduction to public life, I'd yeah. imagine. What was that like? Yeah, it was incredible. And, and it was, you know, I always credit it for being the start of that shift in mindset. You know, I mentioned, you know, a couple of minutes ago that I was very negative as a kid. And for all the years up to 2011, which was my telethon year, the telethon children, the campaign was focused on, you know, doom and gloom and what they couldn't do to try and pull the heartstrings of the West Australians that way to get them to donate. My year was the first year um, that they were focusing on what I could do and, and the sort of positive spin on it. Now, what this did for me as a kid was... For six months, the entire lead up to Telethon, the ad campaigns and meeting all the celebrities and all the people involved in Telethon, which was obviously incredible, that all they were focusing on was what I could do and how amazing that is and and, and that sort of thing rather than, oh, well, you know, you can't kick a, a ball as far as, you know, other able-bodied people your age. And I realized that it was actually sort of incredible that I could do all these things. You know, I'm, I'm quite um, blessed in that I don't have a severe disability. Mine's quite mild. But I needed someone to tell me that for me to realize it. And so leading into Telethon and after Telethon, I was mu- a much, much more positive kid afterwards. And so for that, I am, yeah, ever thankful. We'll take a break there and we'll be back after the break. We're talking to Ben Popham, Australian Paralympic swimming star. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, brought to you by Barrett and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. And we're talking to Paralympic swimming star Ben Popham. Ben, when you first started swimming, did you have 
a role model, a hero that you aspired to be like? Or Yeah, I did. And it was a funny wraparound, actually, because we'll, we'll probably get into it later. But for me, Priya Cooper was my world, I guess, at, at that point. Priya Cooper, for those of you who don't know, is or was until Ellie Cole recently overtook her, is was the the most decorated female Paralympian um, Australia's had. And so she, you know, was in her prime 1996, 2000, that sort of time. And she was a swimmer with the same uh, disability as me, cerebral palsy, and probably maybe just um, greater in her case, but the same severity. So she would, um, she presented me my first medal ever uh, swimming, and I was eight years old. So this is probably... Yeah, 2008. And so she, you know, straight off the back of doing all these incredible things and giving the sport and the movement such incredible visibility would come down to the local pool and and present kids uh, their medals for very, very low tier competitions. And I thought that was that was just incredible as a kid. So when you're swimming with the disability you have, how does it affect the way you go about it? What 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 is most challenging for you? Well, for me, I basically get no uh, feedback with um, how I feel the water. So for me, it's entirely um, about how I look to myself. Now, obviously, if you think that sounds stupid, it probably is because it's a very hard thing to do. Your adjustments, your micro adjustments when you're swimming is all about um, how the water feels to you. If you feel like you're getting more water in the stroke, that's probably a good change. And if you're getting less water in the stroke, it feels it's a bad change, effectively. And having CP, it severely limits the amount um, of feedback you can receive because obviously the, the receptors are all jammed. Neurologically, you're all over the place. And so it becomes extremely difficult to make changes. And once you make them, keep them because... Not only is it uh, hard to feel uh, all your various body parts in, in the water, in the, in the water space, it's also hard to uh, force your brain to remember new pathways for the stroke. So once you've made the change, it's not necessarily a guarantee that you'll keep it because if your brain didn't like it, you're going to have to reteach it the next day, effectively. So obviously you're telling me it doesn't come naturally, but how natural was it for you to 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 become good at it, I guess? Yeah, well, I'm actually quite lucky in my um, genetic makeup that it, it sort of favours being a swimmer. So the classic things like, you know, my my arms are angled at the right um, angle, I guess, to, to catch the water at the most effective point. You know, that's quite a fortunate um, thing that I have and my torso proportions and my shoulders are, can become broad under training, which is obviously not a given. Um, and so genetically, I was actually quite um, fortunate to have um, the shape that I do. Uh, and so it's sort of a battle of, well, I've, you know, I've got the genetics, but I don't have the, <laughs> the disability is unfortunate in a sense. Um, and so picking a sport, it would always lead back to swimming, regardless of what the physio said. Um, and so, I was—I would—I wouldn't say I'm, I was forced into swimming, but it—it it would definitely be my most successful sport if I—if I chose to take it up. And so, when I first got in the pool, it was really difficult. Um, everything was difficult at that time because I had less control over my body than I do now, and so that wasn't necessarily a new feeling for me. When people were telling me, you know, you know, you've got the genetics to be a good swimmer down the line when I was sort of 10, 11, 12, 
that was okay because it wasn't difficult to start with relative to every other sport that I've tried. Mm. You know, even in footy, yes, you don't have to feel where your arms and legs are in the water, but you have to make sure your hand-eye coordination is good enough to drop the ball on your foot in the right place. And I can't point my feet anyway, so <laughs> drop points were terrible. I, I imagine if I was growing up now, when everyone's kicking around the corner, that was slightly easier for me. So maybe I could have had a better chance uh, at succeeding. But for me, it was no different to every other sport that I'd tried. So you have to use your legs when you're swimming, and that is where your disability affects you. How, how did that um, affect you in swimming, and how did you overcome that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, actually. Normal, well, nor able-bodied swimmers, their um, propulsion splits between upper body and legs are usually 70% upper body and 30% legs. So the upper body or part of the stroke is, you know, vastly more important than your legs. For me, I'm probably about a 95% upper body swimmer and 5% legs. So if that gives you a nice little visual on how little I use my legs in the water, um, that's probably good because all I do is just haul myself through the water and use my legs to make sure my hips don't sink. That is the only function of my legs. And the only reason why we want our hips to not sink is so I can use my upper body at a more efficient rate. So it's all about, yeah, you know, making those small adjustments. And for me at the start, it wasn't a small adjustment because I had to bully my shoulders effectively into doing the things I wanted them to do. Now at the start, that's not uh, a normal thing to make the human body want to do. You know, swimming is a very demanding sport as it is. Now, if you try and put 25% extra onto your upper body, they basically explode. And so when, when I was going through um, puberty, I had to be very careful with my load management of my shoulders to not blow them before they developed into, into a man's shoulders effectively, but make sure they had enough strength in them to go forward when, when they did. And so that was the main challenge of making sure that I could become a good swimmer is making sure my, my shoulders didn't go completely kaput before 16 years old. So how long were you doing it before you realized, gee, I might actually be pretty good at this? Yeah, well, there was a lot of blind trust in, in the coaches at the start because one, I, I looked horrific in the water. You know, I've seen videos of me uh, and, you know, it's quite a, quite a sight. But I think 16 was the first time I got scouted into a talent ID camp, one of those ones for Swimming Australia, and that was probably a little too late. So uh, I reckon, yeah, just before I turned 17 was the first time I, I got scouted effectively, and, and by uh, 17 and a half, I made my um, first junior team. So basically straight on onto the scene making teams. And so I got an inkling I was going to be okay at this, or I had the potential to be good at probably 14, 15, so year nine, I'd say. So tell us about um, the events you got pushed into because of your, your individual traits. What, what, what suited you best? Yeah, so at the start when I was um, skinnier, I, I was definitely a 400-meter freestyler, and that's the highest uh, or the furthest you can go in, in Paris sport for swimming is 400 meters. So I was you know, your stock standard long-distance guy, uh, I was doing lots of Ks at a sort of slow interval, and that was me because my turns aren't quick and my start isn't quick, so the 400 gave me um, time to catch up effectively was was the idea. And as we um, sort of developed, you know, we're going to 17, 18 now, 
I really started to put on some bulk to the point where um, it was surprising because cerebral palsy, CP athletes don't have a lot of bulk to begin with. And so, you know, I'm 75, 76 kilos and I'm probably one of the heavier ones in the, in the class um, because of how difficult it is to put on muscle and keep it. Um, and so, you know, we started seeing all this um, muscle development, I guess, just through normal training and my shoulders starting to started to really um, get some power towards them. And we realized if we just raced the 100 meters smart enough, then I could be really quite good at it. I think um, 2018, the Nationals, so I was 18, uh, the Nationals, I dropped 5.4 seconds off last year's time. Now, that is ridiculous. Usually you're looking for probably about 0.5, you'd say, at that age would be a great drop. You, you'd go home from the Nationals in Sydney um, happy. And I dropped 5.4 seconds because of the way we changed the race plan. And that was to, you know, go out at a comfortable pace. Easy speed is what we like to call it. So 90%, the easiest you can go while maintaining speed and then just come home like a train. So 5.5 seconds from what to what? Yeah, so I dropped from uh, one oh four five to uh, fifty nine three or whatever, whatever the math was there. But I I dropped to fifty nine three, um, so straight under a minute um, from way outside the minute, and and that put me right in the firing line to make uh, make a senior Australian team. When you first started racing, because there's swimming and then there's racing. What was that like when you first started competing? Yeah, it was it was um, an experience because swimming, the especially competitive swimming, you're only judged to the outside world, and I guess to an extent internally, you're only you're only judging yourself on how you're performing at the race, um, and so training doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, I've I've known so many swimmers that are great trainers but can't put it together in a race. And so, you know, if they if they raced how they trained, they'd be on an Australian team, comfortable, you know, top four in the world uh, in some cases, but they couldn't put it together in a race. And so I, you know, uh, realized this at actually quite a young age that these skills need to be uh, watertight. They These race skills, you know, your ability to get yourself in the right mindset and prepare yourself to go as quickly as possible effectively, you know, all the imagery and all the stuff that elite athletes talk about. I was, I was starting to try and do it 12. And so the first time I raced, I, I was, you know, nervous all over the place and I swam uh, horribly and compared to what I was training at the time. And I, you know, I thought to myself, I, I never want to happen this to happen again, because I'm putting so much effort into the training and I can't replicate it in the environment that matters. And so that was all that, you know, from the, my first race, that was all that, that mattered to me. It was going fast when it mattered. We'll take a break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the techniques you use to, to improve that side of it. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. And we're talking to Paralympic swimming star Ben Popham. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Paralympic swimming champion Ben Popham. Ben, you mentioned about getting the mental side of competing right. 
what were the techniques you used to get that part of it right? Uh, first of all, my most important step was getting my music playlist right pre-race. Um, lots of sports psychs talk about the importance of optimal arousal, effectively, is, is the way to put it uh, in sports terms. And so you don't want to be under-aroused, i.e. not ready to race at your best, or and you don't want to be over-aroused, you know, worried sick that you're going to perform badly. And so it's all about hitting this optimal zone. And for me, the first thing that I had to get sorted was the playlist. I had to get the right songs at the right tempo so that, you know, I wasn't not ready and I wasn't so psyched out from, you know, the upbeat music that I wanted to go and, you know, tear everything apart because, again, that would not be good either. So I eventually settled on Taylor Swift. Uh, actually, <laughs> finding middle ground, a little swifty. And so that's me. I've had the same playlist from, you know, with some small additions. I've had the same playlist since I was probably 14 years old. Um, and it still does the job. And not only that, you've, you've got to imagine how your race is going to go. You know, me winning the race, preferably. is. And so when you're in the water, you've just, you've got it all to plan. There's nothing else to think about because you've already thought about it 10,000 times before, and this is exactly how you wanted it to go. And this leads into how I train, because how I train mentally, if there's something that I don't know how to do uh, what, when the set is given to me, you know, on a Wednesday afternoon or whatever it is, and I go, I'm not sure I can do that, my goal for the session is to conquer that doubt effectively because then if you do it so many times throughout the year throughout the the four-year cycle you get up on the blocks in the big event and you've got no doubts left and you you've achieved everything you need to achieve you get up on the blocks you're in a perfect zen headspace because what is there else to think about um and that's just the way i train and it creates a uh beautiful headspace or you know beautiful epiphany of realization on the blocks that you're ready uh, to do the thing that you need to do. So the Taylor Swift playlist, mate, what are the songs on it? And do you have to play them in a particular order? Is there a particular song you need to hear the last thing before you get on the blocks? Um, How specific is it? So I used to do exact order and then uh, something went wrong where the songs played out of order and I was so frazzled that I threw my race away. I thought, oh, that's a bit silly. Like, it can't be that down to a T that it it throws me. So it's just a playlist of songs that I like to hear. If I had to pick a song, the last song I listened to uh, is actually not Taylor Swift. It's probably one of the only Taylor Swift songs not in the album, and that is actually Hand of God uh, by John Bellion. Now, I'm, I'm not religious, but the song and, like, the crescendo, I try and time which is, you know, two minutes, 36 into the song, I try and time so that when I walk out, that's when the crescendo hits almost. And and so that always makes me smile and it makes me ready. So for the Taylor Swift part, that's about keeping me calm and not revving me up, you know, 10 minutes before I need to perform. And then as soon or I leave it as late as possible. And then so when the crescendo hits and I and I walk out, bang, I'm on, I'm on. So when you go out, and I've always wondered about this, when the swimmers go out and they, they get ready and they're behind the blocks, are you, t- are you paying any attention to anyone else in the race at that stage or are you just looking at the lane in front of you? Uh, it depends on the swimmer entirely. For me, and it's quite, I guess, a more common way of thinking about it is 
no one is good enough to beat me, so why would I look at anyone else in my lane? I think you do all the studying beforehand and make sure you know personal best and what time you need to go to get through the heats and all that sort of jazz. But when it comes to the final and you're on for a medal, you know, anyone could be in that pool. It wouldn't matter because I'm going to win. So you make your Australian debut in 2018. You pick up two gold medals at the Parapanpac Games and then Swimming Australia's AIS Discovery of the Year Award. Tell us about 2018. Yeah, 2018 was a whirlwind because, you know, as I mentioned before, Berlin was the first junior team that I made, and that was in the early part of 2018, so March. Um, and that was just experience and making sure I could sort of swim under pressure effectively is what Swimming Australia was saying. You know, make sure you, you get things right and you're in with a shot at a, a senior Australian team. So trials come around in July, and I go faster than I did in Berlin. 59.3 was was uh, my time I did in Berlin, and, and I went 59.2. So not quite the 5.4 second drop off, but, uh, you know, better all the same. And so I, I made the team. Um, and that team, 2018, again, the whole cycle, I guess, up until Tokyo was an extremely experienced group of people. Um, you know, we had quite an old team in the end in Tokyo. And so it was, you know, sponge galore. I was basically just this massive sponge trying to get as much information from as much as many different people who had all been to three or four Paralympic Games. It was an incredible start to the journey. So who's coaching you at this stage? I would imagine you're getting pretty specialised by now. Yeah, and so the coach who brought me onto the Australian team is still my current coach. Now, I, I don't know necessarily what the average time is for coach to swimmer partnerships, but we've been going for six and a half years, I think now. Um, and so I'd say that's probably one of the longer ones, but it was, you know, the start of our journey together because once you get uh, onto the Australian team, all this scrutiny comes onto you. And so you have to be um, incredibly disciplined with what you say, how you act um, and how you perform. And so, you know, you can get away with um, not performing at any given meet once you're, or when you're not on Australian teams, but you have to make sure as a coach and as a swimmer, um, your partnership, you have to perform at every single um, benchmark meet is what we call them. So nationals and trials, because if you miss one trials, You've got to wait a year to prove yourself next time. And, and so the doubts start to to rise up from the selection committee and stuff. And so it's always easier to just be at your best all the time and make sure you're hitting the times you need to hit. So who is your coach and what's what, what are they like? Simon Redmond. Simon is one of the last old school coaches in WA, I like to say. He's, he's very tough. He's adapted his ways to the, to the modern society. You know, talk to his old swimmers and he's a nutcase. Talk to me now and he's, um, he's hard, he gives hard love. Um, he's very, very good. And, and the reason why he's good um, and the, why our partnership works so well is he, he always comes from a base of what an able-bodied swimmer can do. I think that's really important because then you can make the necessary adaptations um, to suit your disability. But what sometimes makes swimmers become unstuck is that if they're in a disability-only centralized program, you've got no one to compare to other than other people, other swimmers with disabilities. Now, you know, you can try and beat them, but able-bodied swimmers are always going to be the fastest swimmer. 
So they're always going to be the best example as to how much or how you can get the best pace possible in the pool. And then you take time off because you have to make your necessary adaptions or I can't kick. But I always want to be looking at Cam McAvoy or Kyle Chalmers uh, stroke and the way they move through the water rather than my competition because they're, you know, Kyle goes 12 seconds faster than me in a hundred freestyle. So it, it would almost be stupid for me to not see um, how I can use his stroke um, as a baseline and then adapt for where I need to. And so that's why it works so well because Simon is so um, disciplined and um, he believes so heavily in that model um, of improvement that it just works like a dream. You win a silver medal and two bronze at the Para World Swimming Championships in London in 2019. Was that your big breakthrough, do you think, internationally? Yeah, I think maybe the year before was was something where it didn't work for my ego. I think I jumped on the scene at 2018 and I won these medals and I thought, well, I'm the best in the world. There's nothing else to it. I've completed the sport. And so it was almost bad. And, you know, winning all these awards, it was almost bad for my ego and the way I train that 2019 was good. And I was, I think I was lucky to get the silver um, with how I was preparing. But 2019 was good because I got saved by my race skills effectively, you know, I, you know, the skills that I've been training for so long that it didn't match what I put in the water before because I wasn't hungry anymore um, to win because I just won. So 2019, I jump on and I get saved by my race skills and it's a, it's a wake-up call, to be honest, um, that I need to, I can't um, take my foot off the gas. I need to make sure that throughout this journey, I'm putting in 100% every time I jump in the water. We'll take a break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about the Paralympics. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and O'Day, and we're talking to Paralympic swimming champion Ben Pot- Popham. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everywhere. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. We're talking to Ben Popham. Ben, tell us about the Olympics in 2020. Yeah, well, 2021. Weren't they special? Uh, 2020 comes around and uh, February, Melbourne, I go the fastest in the year. So obviously there's only been two months. That's good. So I'm like, yep, that's okay. That's a good start. Now, because the uh, COVID, because COVID came and shut everything down, I've actually got the fastest time of the year in 2020 as well, which is a nice <laughs> little bonus fact. But um, COVID shuts everything down. I'm the fastest in the world, so obviously I'm feeling good. COVID was actually all about making sure you back your own training plan because now, for the 18 months leading up to a Paralympic Games, you have no times to go on worldwide. You don't know what anyone is swimming. You don't know how fast they're swimming it or how even they're swimming the race. You've got no footage, no intel, no nothing. So you have to really go, hang on, my process is really good. My training plan is going to get me the time that's going to win me the race. And so that was the big challenge coming up to uh, Tokyo in 2021. So we go to trials in, in July again, 2021, and I make the team. So massive relief off the... Off the chest, but I was swimming well enough that that wasn't going to be the main challenge. So we we get on this massive staging camp. Usually it's about two or three weeks because of COVID and all the precautions. It was, you know, six, seven weeks before the games. We all got together and then the two weeks quarantine afterwards. So it was a big, big journey. But what that did was 
allow me to be in the Australian Dolphins and that environment for longer. One of the special things about the Australian Dolphins is all the coaches and all the physios are masters in their trade and not only masters in their trade, but they're masters in understanding the para movement and understanding how para athletes operate. So instead of having to explain yourself all the time and all the little things you do, you know, whether it be coaches or, or just general uh, people, you don't have to explain anything anymore and people can actually come to you with proactive suggestions rather than, you know, um, trying to figure things out by yourself. And so that is incredible. I also am a big, big fan of hard work and what, what better way can you sort of immerse yourself in the environment of hard work than a six-week staging camp where everyone's getting flogged for four of the six weeks. Um, so we get to Tokyo, we're flying in, and the first person I see that isn't an Australian is actually the Greek swimmer that, that beat me in the 2019 um, World Champs. And so, you know, suddenly the person that's up on my dartboard that I wake up to every morning is in the flesh, and that's uh, a crazy thing to think of. And Tokyo was special because it was more of a mental thing than anything I've ever seen before, and maybe ever I ever will, because there was obviously no crowd and lots of different things there and the way the Olympic Games or Paralympic Games operated were, were different. But the warm-up pool was colder than expected and, and lots of little things uh, were off. So you jumped in the warm-up pool when you were colder than when you got out than when you jumped in and and the, you know, the walk to the marshing room was probably 900 metres. Now, obviously, that's not... Um, the end of the world for me, who can walk, but for people who are in wheelchairs, that's an absolute nightmare. And for me, even still, it's not ideal. So there's lots of little things like that that aren't ideal circumstances. Now, swimming is a very ideal sport. You can train almost exactly to the T of what um, your expectation for the environment is going to be. So it threw a lot of people off. And so we get to the heats the morning. This is day one. It's our first day. and Nothing was sort of out of the ordinary, but a lot of people were twitchy. Um, so it was a slow heat because not only was the warm-up pool cold, the marshing room was cold and the comp pool was, was cold. So everything was cold. And so you were quite stiff when you raced. And so I got through fastest. And I was like, right, that's a good start. It was a pretty slow time, but that's a good start. And the finals come around in the evening and the same issues are still there. They haven't fixed any of it. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, immaculately run event, but the little things were, were getting to everyone. And I, I got there probably no joke, like 15 seconds before the cutoff time to marshing. Cause you know, everything was sort of going wrong and I was anyway, but what that allowed me to do was I was the last person into the marshing room. And, and so the chairs are in a line. So there's lane one, then lane two behind him, lane three, and you're all looking at the back of someone's head. And straight away, I walk into the room and I've raced most of these guys before, about seven of the eight guys I'd raced before, or six of the eight guys I'd raced before. And, you know, people were doing like things they wouldn't usually do. So they're doing like clap push-ups right before a race. They're doing like, you know, they're, they're going crazy. And I'm going, well, these guys are trying to overcompensate for the fact that they don't think they're ready because their warm-up hasn't been good enough or their, their immediate prep. And so I go, right, they're gone. You know, swimming is such a mental sport. They're gone. Instantly, I walk in the room and I've ruled out four people. And so it's a four-horse race. That's pretty good odds. You know, I've half my odds of, of winning. And I sit down. And as I sit down, I've ruled two other people off because – or one other person off, sorry. And I go, right, I'm in with a medal chance. So I, I've sat down five seconds into sitting down. 
into the first room of two in in the marching room, I'm already on the podium in my in my head. I go, at at worst, I've got a bronze medal here. And so, you know, we're about to move to the second marching room. This is probably about 10 minutes before. And the Greek guy, who's quite a typical Stoic Greek, doesn't show much emotions, doesn't do anything, just sort of sits there in his own world. He looks, he's uh, he's right in front of me. So I'm looking into the back of his head and he turns around and he looks at me and he looks, he looks scared. And it's only brief. And I go, right, if he does that again, I'm ruling him out too. And we get into the second marching room and we're about to line up to go out. And as they call his name, he turns around and looks at me again for longer and looks more scared. <laughs> and I go, right, he's not beating me again. It's top two. At best, I've won. And at worst, I've got a silver medal. Now, my whole race plan for the 100 freestyle was to come home hard. My second 50 in the 100 freestyle was the best in the world by a long, long way. We, we knew that. And so all I had to do was not blow the race in the first 50. I'd trained so much at so many different points in the 100 freestyle. You know, we'd start at 75 to go. We'd start at 73 to go. We'd start at 72 to go. All the different meter, meters and with people of different paces. So I knew exactly how much breathing room I had before I was going to lose the race. So I turn at the first 50 after being up on the blocks and, and getting nervous as usual and going, well, this is it. So I've swam my first 50 and it's feeling good. And I've turned and I've had a, at the 50 and I've, I've turned and I've had a cheeky look. You're not supposed to, but for my mental uh, well-being, I had a look. And I looked around and I said, oh, I've got this. Uh, you know, I'm close, I'm close enough to, to the Greek guy. I've got this. I've won. And what that allowed me to do, although cocky, it's sort of on the line of confidence and arrogance, I guess, uh, was appreciate that I was swimming through the field in a Paralympic final. You know, I turned fifth, so I had four people to overtake. What I didn't see was the Russian, who eventually came second, came storming home. And I think I touched him out by 0.3. But obviously, it would have been a very different story if I let this Russian guy beat me because I was breathing to the left and he was coming to the right. So I didn't see him at all. So I was, I was swimming through and I'd overtaken the Greek with 15 to go. And I was, you know, obviously you, you pump hard till the end. But I was, I was in, you know, hysterics almost before I hit the wall because I thought I'd won it. Um, and it's crazy. You know, you, you check the, the scoreboard at the end. You know, it's got your times up on you. You go, who was that close to me? Like who was 0.3 away from stealing the medal that I thought was mine already. And so crazy race, crazy, crazy race. But obviously you know, I touched the wall and it is a culmination of 12 years of hard work and 12 years of having a dream. And so, you know, I had a little moment and to wrap it in a nice bar, a little bow, Priya Cooper, the uh, wonderful woman who presented me my first medal was doing the commentary for Channel 7 of my race that I won. And so, you know, she's crying, I'm crying, everyone's crying. It's an incredibly emotional moment and one that I'll never forget. Tell us about the support from your family through all of this. Obviously, you mentioned your brother's role in supporting you at school. How important have they been to you? Massive, uh, especially growing up as a kid. They were firm but fair in making sure that I wasn't allowed to get away with things just because I had a disability. Um, and I think that's really important, um, growing into a, a man with a disability instead of a boy is take responsibilities for the things you can't do and look for ways to overcome them. Because in the big bad world, 
people aren't going to allow you to just uh, bunk off effectively because you have a disability. You have to find ways around it. And so they were very um, keen in instilling that on me. And not only that, but swimming is a sport where the best swimmers have quite hands-off parents because the feedback loop is already enough with a coach. They, the coach knows best. The coach knows how to manage you and what loading you should you know, do on a given week, whether or not I should do 40Ks or 45Ks, how my stroke's looking and all these things. And sometimes parents are well-intentioned, but they mess with that stuff by giving you comments and by giving you, oh, I think you should be doing this and, oh, should you really be doing this and, and that sort of stuff. And, and mum and dad were exceptionally good at trusting the process and making sure that they had quite a hands-off approach to my training and that delivered in, in spades. Ben, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Uh, we wish you all the best because you're, you're still so young. You've still got so much to do and, uh, and so much is possible for you. And uh, we wish you all the best. It's truly um, a remarkable story so far. Thanks for having me, Duff. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Barrett and O'Day. We've been talking to Ben Popham. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.